You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Let's open up our Bibles to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. We are in a study of the book of Judges. We are continuing that uh, and working our way through um, a chapter at a time. We're, it, we're about to pick up and do more than a chapter in a little bit, but right now we're at, a, at roughly at that pace, kind of going through verse by verse and trying to understand what the Lord has for us. And today we're going to talk about this theme, the power of weakness. It's counterintuitive, but it's all over the Bible, and it's especially in this passage about Gideon, the power of weakness. Now, here is something that is true uh, throughout Scripture and in the life of the Christian, and that is this, that God calls us to trust Him in impossible situations. God calls us to trust him in seemingly impossible situations. You may have heard the old story. I probably heard it 40 years ago. Uh, The old story about the guy who was out hiking, and um, he uh, was along the side of a cliff and lost his footing. And after losing his footing, was was falling down into the bottom of this canyon and as he's falling, he reaches out and grabs hold of a branch that is protruding from the side of the cliff, and, uh, and he hangs on. And there he is, hanging on. His legs are just dangling over certain death the moment uh, he loses his grip. And so he is hanging on, and in a moment of desperation, uh, decides, I better call out and find out if I can get some divine help. So he looks up from where he's hanging on, and he yells out, if you are up there, God, please save me. And to his surprise, a a booming voice addresses him and says, let go of the branch. Let go of the branch and trust me. So he hangs on and he looks down and then he looks back up and said, is there anybody else up there? It's early and it's a dad joke. But that's how we feel. God calls us to impossible things and calls us to trust him. And we frequently, rather than trust him, would rather find another place, a more secure place, a stronger and more certain option that we can see and measure than trusting God with the unknown. In the story we're about to read today in Judges 7, God puts Gideon in a desperate place of weakness where he is forced to trust God. And we'll see this play out in his story, which is so common in the overall theme of the Bible, that God displays his power through human weakness. This is where God demonstrates his greatness. Now, we met uh, Gideon last week as we were in Judges 
uh, chapter 6. And what we found out was that uh, the people of Midian were oppressing Israel terribly for seven years, and God is raising up Gideon to be a military leader, a judge to rescue uh, the people of God. And, uh, and Gideon is a fearful sort. He, he argues with God that he's unqualified, that he's from a weak, uh, you know, a, a weak tribe. He's not a qualified individual for this. So that's where it starts with him pushing back on God. He needs signs of comfort and assurance, and God provides those. Um, he's afraid of his family. He's afraid of what the townspeople will think if he serves God and does what God's telling him to do. Uh, and then finally, uh, before he will go and obey God, after all of this fear, uh, uncertainty, need for assurance, he, he asks God to do a sign for him, another sign. And he does this fleece thing where he puts out a fleece and asks for a sign from God two times. And what we see in the passage is that God is merciful to fearful Gideon. God is patient with Gideon. And what we're going to see today is that God's power is going to flow through Gideon's weakness. So previously, God is patient with Gideon. Today, God's power will emerge through his weakness. So let's read. We're going to break this up into sections, uh, verses 1 through 8. Uh, in Judges to begin. And here we're going to see how the people of God become aware of their weakness. God makes them aware of their need for him. So chapter 7, verse 1, this is God's word. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morab in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midians into their, uh, Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, uh, as a dog laps you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So, This is the preparation for war. Israel is camped across from the Midianites. And then God says the strangest thing. He makes the most unusual, startling 
command imaginable. Uh, It's the key to understanding the whole chapter, and it's found in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, chapter 8 is going to tell us that there are 135,000 Midianites. 135,000 Midianites. There are 32,000 Israelites. And yet, God says, you have too many. You have too many. They have, you know, more than four times what you have, but you have too many. Why? Because if you win the battle, even at four to one odds, uh, if you win the battle, you're going to credit yourself. You're going to boast in yourself and say, look what we have done, even with this kind of severe troop discrepancy. You'll still take credit for it. And this is very revealing because the problem here is not that they will credit the idol Baal. That's been the problem all along. Not that they will credit the idol Baal, but that they will credit a much greater idol, the idol of idols, the idol of me. The idol of self, it is the most insidious idol of all. And so if you do this, you will, you will credit yourself, boast in yourself rather than boasting in me. And so God is doing something merciful for them here. He doesn't want them to set themselves up as false saviors, as their own personal savior, uh, as their own deliverer. He wants them rather to see their need for him and to then experience his power. Because the big problem in the entire book of Judges has been that God's people have forgotten him. They have forgotten that he is the God who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land, that he has done all of this for them. They have forgotten it, not, not intellectually forgotten it. They could certainly recall those facts on a history test. The problem is the fact that God is the delivering God, the God of grace that has brought them out of slavery, it's not informing their vision of their life. It's not informing their daily living. It's not informing how they treat their neighbor. It's not informing what matters to them. So they're not living in the good. It's not that they don't know that good news. It's they're not living in the good of it. And so here, He is putting them in an impossible situation so that they will see him. And so uh, he starts off by by, by sort of paring down the 32,000, even though that's a pretty scary uh, discrepancy. He starts to pare it down. So he says, uh, whoever is fearful can go home, and right then 22,000 walk off. 22,000 walk off. Now, maybe you think that's really unusual just to say who's scared going home, but this is actually a biblical provision for war. Uh, Deuteronomy 20 verse 8 says this, and the officers shall speak further to the people and say, is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to the house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. So you see what the the provision for war was. If someone's fearful about going into war, send them home because they will cause others' hearts to melt as their own. What he's saying is that fear is contagious. 
2020, anyone? The year 2020. Fear about everything is contagious. It spreads. And what happens is if a few men in the battle start running, if a few, just a few start a retreat, that snowballs. And everyone else is, it's over. We've lost. And you see that. You, you see that kind of panic in our own nation where, where the kind of fear that spreads on any number of topics, what's going to happen rather than a trust that God is sovereign? So fear is contagious, so it's, it's probably wise to cut off sources into your heart and mind where you have the choice to cut off sources that breed fear in your heart because that fear spreads to you. Now, fear of the Lord, that's a different thing. Or you know, being aware of legitimate concerns. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about fear. So they're now 10,000 to 135,000, and God is not done with his military defense cutbacks. There are going to be more cutbacks. And so in verse 4, he says, the people are still too many. Man, these are some hard-hearted folks. If they win at 10, to 10,000 to 135, they're still going to take some credit. Look what we did. So he says, here's what we're going to do. Everybody's going to go down to the water. Everybody's going down to the river and everyone is going to drink. So everybody's going to get a drink, break, everybody take a break, everybody go get a drink. And then God tells Gideon to be watching and he is going to divide the troops by their drinking habits. This is so unusual. So he says, anyone that gets down and drinks basically directly. So anybody that gets up to the river, puts their face in the water and sort of drinks, uh, ultimately they're going to go home. Anybody who scoops water, who scoops water, not a kneel, he calls the other kneelers, anyone who scoops water and sort of, you know, laps it like a dog is what he says, those people are going to battle. Well, of the 10,000, there's, there, there's 9,700 kneelers. There's only 300 dog lappers. And so those 300 are going to war. What's so funny about this is there's been all kinds of interpretations about why the lappers and, ex, you know, sort of extravagant explanations. Well, those who put their face right in, they weren't ready for battle. They were just, they were consumed with their own drinking and they weren't alert. But those who were lapping, they were looking around. They were alert. They were, they were the keen, keen, aware warriors. There's two problems with that. The text says nothing about that. The text says nothing about who God is choosing, what the reason for his choice is. And secondly, that defies the spirit of the text. The spirit of the text isn't get your best warriors, because even at 300, they may say, our best one. The point is he is wanting to gut them of self-confidence. He is wanting them to see their need for him alone. So with 300 soldiers, what appears to us randomly, but God had a purpose in it, chosen, there will be no mistaking that God is the victor. If they win the battle, surely no one would take credit with those numbers. The weakness of 300, the depleted resources of the army down to 300, it's a gift from the Lord. Because it's the platform where God's power is going to be displayed. And I wonder if we think about our own weaknesses that way. Do you think about the weaknesses in your life as a gift the boundaries in your life as a gift. 
the limitations, the God-ordained limitations in your life as a gift. It's a totally different way of seeing things, isn't it? Because it's a gift. Anything is a gift that glorifies the Lord. Anything that is a gift that is is an opportunity for us to encounter his power. He wants them to make it through and say, there's only one explanation. That was God. Have you had those experiences in your life? Those are the good experiences, the best experiences, the memorable experiences in your life. When you go through something and at the end of it you say, the only way that happened was God. The only way that worked out was God. Those are the key moments, but you only, you only experience those when you get to the place that you must have God because you're facing an impossibility. So we don't want to get to that place. We just want the power of God, the deliverance of God, the story. We want the story, but you don't get the story until God says 300 versus 135,000. Then you get the story, the power of God. Well, let's read the next section because here they, they start becoming aware of their weakness. Now they're going to become aware, Gideon's going to become aware of God's power, starting in verse 9, and we'll read down to 18. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and his interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and all who are with me then blow the trumpets, also on every side of all the camp, and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Well, here is a a really, I think, a moving section of the Gideon story because God again is mercifully reaching down to Gideon. You know, the psalm says, I think it's Psalm 103, I, I think it is, where he says, he knows our frame. God knows what you're made of. God knows how you're wired. God knows your history. God knows your weaknesses. And God in his mercy 
meets us in our weaknesses. So what does he do with Gideon? Well, anybody would be scared with these kinds of numbers going into battle the next day. But, but he knows Gideon's tendency, and so he reaches down to Gideon, and he, he gives him uh, an encouraging, overwhelmingly encouraging sign. He speaks to him, verse 9, and says, Go down against the camp, for I have given it uh, into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. He tells him, I've given Midian into your hand, so go down there, and something's going to happen. But if you're afraid to go down there, why don't you take Pura with, it, with you? So he goes down to the camp, and it describes the camp as uh, locusts, uh, as people like locusts, because that's what they were. They would take their food like locusts, take their crops. Uh, and they have so many people, so many camels, it's like the sand of the seashore. What's he saying? It's innumerable. You can't even count how many of them there are down there. But when he sneaks down there, he hears something. He overhears a conversation. So they're eavesdropping on this conversation of a couple of soldiers in Midian. And a guy just so happens to be telling his dream to the other guy. And he said, I had, I had this dream. It was crazy. This, this barley loaf. Now, when we meet Gideon, he's actually threshing wheat, uh, which is interesting. So this barley loaf rolls down uh, into the camp, and it smashes the tent. And, and his friend says, oh, I have the interpretation of that dream. It's dreadful. It's fearful if you're a Midianite. He says, God has given our army. God has given Midian into the hands of Gideon. God is giving us over. That's what this means. And so it is the fearful interpretation of the Midianites that affects Gideon's heart. I mean, he stares this squarely in the face, says, this can't be an accident. There's no coincidence. I didn't just happen to show up here. God told me to come down here, and this is assuring. And it says in verse 15, as soon as as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. This is the best moment of the entire Gideon story. The Gideon story does not end well. Gideon don't do good as we go forward. But this is the best moment because now Gideon sees clearly. Now Gideon sees God. This is the power of God. If God can do this, if God can bring me down here before fearful Midianites interpreting a dream that was clearly from God, along with the interpretation from God, if God can do that, then surely he will deliver his people. God's power leads him to worship. God is always acting in our lives to lead us to the point where we intentionally worship. That may be singing like we just did. That may be praying. That may be reading his word. But it's more than that. That, That's part of it. That's a subset of worship. But it's more than that. It's viewing all of life for the glory of God. It's viewing everything we do all of our responsibilities, all we're called to as our lives, Romans 12, as a living sacrifice to him. So it certainly means, and probably here he knelt and prayed or something, so probably it was a moment of what we think of as worship uh, in that way. But it's also worship when he goes back up and says, hey, everybody, God is going to deliver us. When he announced the good news, that's worship. When he says, I've got a plan, a crazy plan, that's worship because he's trusting that the Lord is going to help them in the battle. 
So when it says he worshiped here, it does mean probably that he had a moment like you think of, I think of, prayer, song, Bible reading, meditation. So he had a spiritual moment, no doubt. But, but in a broader sense, this is what God is always about. God is always about leading us to a place where, we, where I am free of me. And my vision is not about me and my little world and my little preferences and my little comforts. But it's about what is God doing? And in this case, God is doing something miraculous for his people so that he will be glorified. And it's, it's seeing that and responding to God with gratitude and worship and then acting on what I see, acting with that same vision compelling my heart, that this is about glorifying God in what he is doing so that his power will be on display in my weakness. Gideon is so confident of his strength, God's strength, that he runs back and says, guys, do, listen, do what I do. Follow me. Man, now this is Gideon leading. Early on, Gideon's like, I'm not a leader. I'm from Manasseh. Earlier on, it's like, I don't know, God. Like, make the fleece wet. Now make it dry. Doing all these fleece tricks. He is timid and fearful. But now he's like, okay, everybody, eyes on me. Do exactly what I do. He's confident. Why is he confident? Because he is convinced of the power of God. Oh, that he would stay there. But, but at this moment, it's perfect. This is the moment. Okay, the next section uh, that we'll finish up with is God displaying his power through human weakness. So he has, he's made them aware, he's, he's made them aware of their weakness and their power, and now he's going to display his power. Verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zererah, as far as the border of Abel Mehaloah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of, Eph- of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And to all the men of Ephraim, were ca- so all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the wine press of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And then we finish up with this uh, little uh, issue with Ephraim in chapter 8. When the men of Ephraim said to him, what is, it, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely, and he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? 
Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So God demonstrates his power now. He demonstrates his power through human weakness. They're divided into three groups, and uh, three groups of 100. They gather outside the camp of Midian. Each has a trumpet, each has a torch, and each has uh, a jar, uh, you know, uh, like a jar of clay, something like that, made of something like that would make, that would make noise. And uh, so what they do is they gather, and when he gives the signal, they all break their jars And so then all the torches which are lit, all these lights appear uh, around the camp, and they blow the trumpets. So a hundred trumpets, not one, not two, not ten, a hundred trumpets all blow at once, and, uh, and they yell for the Lord and for Gideon. And so the Midianite army is startled by this. They start running around. They turn on one another. They're confused, and it says one kills another. They're killing their comrades, and then they start running. They start fleeing from this little bitty army. It's nighttime, so they have no idea how big it is. They start fleeing. Uh, Israel chases them, chases them all the way. He, Gideon calls out some other uh, tribes to help, uh, but he chases them all the way to the Jordan. And Ephraim meets them at the Jordan and takes care of the ones that have remained uh, takes care, kills them, kills the two princes um, who are named. Uh, those are just like the best names, are they not? Oreb, uh, those Oreb and Zeb. I don't know. If, if there's any moms expecting twin boys, there are your names. Those are the best. O and Z. Uh, so they kill the princes, take their heads, uh, cut off their heads, and, you know, win the battle. Now, we don't get all the details, but we do know in chapter 8 that 120,000 died. 120,000 died. Uh, We know that much. And we don't know exactly what happens at the very beginning. Probably what happens is they catch them at a vulnerable time. It's night, so they're vulnerable. And it's it's the chains of the guard shifts. So a third of the guys are asleep. A third are tired and going to bed because they're coming off shift and a third are coming on shift. So there's movement, and all of a sudden there's this loud noise and lights all around you. So guys are flying out of their tents asleep. They don't know what's going on. The guys that are tired who've been on watch, uh, they don't, you know, there's just this mass commotion. What is this? They hear trumpets. They hear yelling, and uh, they assume there's a massive army out there, and they run. And so God does this with 300 men. And the whole point of the story is so the 300 would say, God rescued us. And the tribes that fought down at the Jordan would say, they just ran right into us and we killed them. God delivered them into our hands. And that those that were home or went home were sent home and didn't participate, they'd say, God delivered me and I wasn't even there. I was a kneeler. I was fearful. God delivered us. God delivered me. The whole point is that God does the delivering. Human weakness is the platform for the power of God. And we see this in Gideon, but we see it even more beautifully, more powerfully in the great deliverer that Gideon points to. Gideon is a deliverer, but he points beyond himself. Each of these deliverers point beyond themselves to the great deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the message of the gospel in Christ 
is that God's power is displayed through weakness, that God rescues through weakness, that God saves through weakness. And the greatest demonstration of this in all the scriptures, not Gideon, but it's the Lord Jesus. Think about him. He is born in weakness. He, as a baby, is laying in an animal trough. He is, he is born unknown, out, outside of all the fanfare, except for a few shepherds and uh, some wise men. But, but he, he is off the grid, under the radar, born to not a special family, not a royal family or anything like that. His birth is, well, to the onlooker, it's inconsequential. His life he did amazing things, amazing miracles for those who had eyes to see. He, he did tremendous, he had tremendous teaching in parables for those who had ears to hear the work of the kingdom. But most didn't see, didn't hear, or they opposed him. Jesus' entire life was lived outside the power structures of Israel. He wasn't, he was a teacher, but he wasn't a teacher in the power structures. He wasn't an insider. He wasn't a Pharisee. He, he was an itinerant teacher who says, the Son of Man does not even have a place to lay his head at night. He was homeless, a traveling teacher. And he lived, though he interacted with power, he lived on the margins. The people that delighted to be with him were children, the common folk, the outsiders, the lepers approached him. The tax collectors and prostitutes sat at the table with him. They loved him, those on the margins, those in power when he ate with Pharisees. The, the story is typically that they don't get it and they're offended. He lived in weakness, and then ultimately he died in weakness. He died the cruelest death of his day, the death by crucifixion. And it wasn't just the weakness of physical suffering. It was the utter weakness of bearing our sins upon himself within his body, experiencing the judgment of the Father for our sins. Weak beaten, mocked, abused, hated, rejected, weak, buried in a tomb. He didn't even have his own tomb. Couldn't even afford a, a, a place to be buried. And so he, he's placed in a donated tomb, weak, forsaken. All of his followers, except for a few ladies, desert him. And by the way, after he's been in there on the third day, all of his followers, except a few ladies, desert him. And from that grave, he is raised in power from an empty tomb. And he has uh, made himself available to his followers. He appears to them. He teaches them. He commissions them. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he sits on a throne in his kingly rule over all creation. He went from utter weakness in birth and life and death to absolute authoritative reign today on the throne, ruling over all, sovereignly acting as he chooses. God's power is displayed through human weakness. There is death before there is resurrection. There is loss before there is glory. 
That is the story of Jesus, and that is the story he calls all of his followers into. Be my, to be my disciple, you must die to yourself. This is what we're all called to. Paul demonstrates that this is not only this weakness, the power and weakness, it's not only how you become a Christian, it's not only how you were brought into the kingdom, it's not only how you were converted. That is how you're converted. I give up. I have nothing to commend myself. I bring nothing but my sin to the table that you, forgive, that you would forgive it, Lord, by your grace. We do nothing for our own salvation. You have to be on your knees in utter weakness, uh, disassociating yourself, repenting of not only your bad works, but your good works. So we are saved by weakness. But Paul would say, you know what? Your growth, your life is weakness as well. And certainly your ministry to others flows out of weakness. Paul says this in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, there's this story where he's given a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. It's a metaphor for suffering. I mean, it wasn't a metaphor for him. It was real for him. But it's a, the thorn is a picture of suffering. He, he has some physical illness. He has some, it's the rejection he faces and the resistance, the persecution. It's something we don't know. But he says this about it. When he prays that the thorn will be taken, and God says to him, my power is made perfect in weakness. He says to Paul, you want my power? It comes through weakness. And then Paul says this, I'll boast gladly of my weaknesses. Not resist, not run, not hide. I will boast in weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the guy writing the Bible, planting churches, the apostle to the Gentiles. And he said, if I want the power of Christ working in my life, it will require the embracing, not just embracing, boasting in my very weaknesses. So how do we apply the Gideon story, which points to Jesus and Paul, the Christian life, how we live our Christian life? Well, it's probably obvious, right? We embrace weakness, or as Paul says, we boast in our weaknesses. Everything in me wants to run from weakness. You too. I want to hide my weaknesses. I don't want you to know about my weaknesses. I don't lead with my weaknesses. But God calls us to acknowledge and embrace and look to him in weaknesses. Where are you weak today? And when I say weak, this is not what I mean. I don't mean as Dale Davis said. He said, it's not like you're just this glob of spiritual jello. Okay, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean you're passive. It doesn't mean you're whiny. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. That's not what weakness means. Weakness in this case means you know your limitations because God has made them clear to you. You know the places he has boxed you in. That's knowing your weaknesses. Someone could be externally appear very strong and live out of their weaknesses because they acknowledge them, they, they share them, they're humble, and they look to God in all their weaknesses. We all have limitations mentally, physically, emotionally, financially, vocationally, relationally. Pick any area of your life. God, there are weaknesses in our lives. The key is, do we see those limitations as a ordained from God platform for him to bring his power? 
do we see this as the place God wants to work in us and through us? Do you see weakness as an opportunity to encounter the power of God? We all want the power of God. Well, it starts here, going from 22K down to 300. That's where it starts. It starts with Jesus offering his life, humbling himself to the point of death. Now, sometimes God will remove a weakness from us through prayer, through repentance, or just through growth in him, growth in discipleship. Sometimes God removes a weakness, but you'll find another one somewhere else. It's, you'll never live weakness-free until he returns uh, and brings the new heaven and the new earth. But, but we, he does remove sometimes. But ultimately, we need to see our weaknesses as a place where God wants to meet us. Where are you weak? You know, just the, just, just the span of life includes weakness that cannot be avoided. You're born weak. There are no strong babies. Some of you are saying, yeah, my kid cried all night last night. That's a strong baby. Okay, we'll give you that one. But, but there's no strong baby. You're all born in weakness. You don't know how to walk. You don't know how to talk. We're all born in weakness. And here's the deal. As we age, if you live long enough, you will experience weakness again. There, there is no 90-year-old that has the natural mental acuity and physical strength as the average 20-year-old. It's, that just doesn't happen. Part of aging is growing weaker, and some of you are experiencing that. Even now, there's younger people in your work. They're quicker, they're more creative, they're more energetic. Lord knows they're more tech-savvy. Uh, and you realize, you know what, I've lost a step. All of us are going to come to the day where we go, man, I've lost a step in that area. Everyone will come to that place. Maybe your memory or your energy is not what it used to be. But I want to say to our senior saints and our near senior saints that God wants to meet you in that weakness. It is our culture that idolizes youth, idolizes technology, idolizes what's the newest trendiest, but God doesn't value those things. God values wisdom. That's what God values. Maybe God wants to use you in a way that you see as weakness, yet maybe God wants to use your life in ways that you're not even, you're not even viewing or imagining right now. That if you would make yourself available, acknowledging the weaknesses in your life, what might God do through them? Maybe you have physical limitations, chronic suffering, pain. I believe God wants to use your weakness in ways that you, you're not even thinking about perhaps right now. Now, maybe he wants to heal you. We pray for the sick. Maybe he wants to heal you. Or maybe he just wants you to persevere through the trial for his glory, looking to him, trusting him, and maybe even being a more fruitful witness in your suffering than you would be in your healing. That is possible. Maybe you have financial limitations, financial limitations, and you're saying, I need God to meet me. God's going to meet you in your weakness. And there may be a lot of things that help you financially, self-control, budgeting, understanding some things about money, getting out of debt. But I can assure you part of the picture will be this. You're going to be at 300. 
facing 135,000 warriors, and you say, this is impossible, and God is going to call you to empty resources, to give. That's what God's going to do. He's going to call you to generosity in your weakness. He may do other things, but he's going to do that. And when you're going to find God meet you in a way that you never knew possible. And many people, they cheat themselves out of experiencing the power of God because they hoard with fear rather than generously giving what they have. Maybe you have a family relationship where you feel weak. Your marriage, maybe it's your child, maybe it's your aging parent, but there's a family relationship where you feel weak. You are unable to affect change in another person. You cannot change someone else's heart. You need God. And when you stop seeking to manipulate and change by your power and trust the Lord, no telling what he may do in the other person, but for sure he's going to do something in you in that moment. When you say, God, I give up, I can't do, I need your power. Maybe you experience other kind of pushback. Maybe you experience racial prejudice in your work. Maybe you're experiencing slander from your neighbor next door. Maybe you're experiencing persecution for your faith from your extended family. I don't know. Somewhere there's pushback, and God's wanting to meet you in that. Whatever overwhelms you, that's your weakness. Whatever regularly blocks you, that's your weakness. Whatever drains your soul, that's your weakness. And wherever your weakness is, there is the power of God. There is God waiting on you to see your need so that he demonstrates his power in weakness. His power is made perfect in your weakness. Some of us need to become aware of our weakness. Some of us need to become aware as well of the power of God. Some of us need reassurance today just like Gideon needed. Well, God reassures us and God meets us at least in three places. One, through his word. He comes to Gideon and says, go down there. I'm gonna sh-. He speaks to him. He speaks to us through his word. He comes alongside us with his people. Did you know what he said to scared Gideon? If you don't want to go down there alone, bring Pura, your servant. Some of you need a Pura in your life right now, and they can't come alongside you and be Pura because they don't know you're scared. They don't know your weakness because you're putting on this act like you've got it all together. You need to acknowledge your weakness to someone who's a godly person that can come alongside you, and you'll experience the power and strength of God. And lastly, through prayer. And that's how we're going to end today. The band would come up. Uh, We're going to sing, and we're going to end with prayer. Here, Here is one of the most powerful pathways to experiencing the power of God in weakness. It is boasting in weakness. That is, It is acknowledging our weakness. It is confessing our need. It is opening ourselves up and saying, this is where I am. This is what my need is. This is where I'm limited. This is where I'm weak. This is where I'm sinning and need God to grant me the power uh, to change and to repent and change. This is where I'm overwhelmed. This is where I'm confused. This is where I'm fearful. And coming and saying, would you pray for me that God would it enable me to embrace my weakness so that I could see his power and trust him and that I could act in faith. So we're going to sing, let's stand together.
and we're going to sing. And while we're singing, I want the prayer team to please come right now to be down front, and we're going to be available to pray. So while we're singing the song, we're going to do this now, not the end of the service. So we're going to sing, and while we're singing, you could be responding to the Lord, but we'll have people down here that are ready to pray for you and uh, ready to whatever your need is. It'll be brief. There's not time for counseling or something like that. Uh, We're just going to say, we're going to stand alongside. You say what your need is, and we're going to pray for God to show his power to you, to reassure you, to to make you confident to do what he's calling you to do. So you come, and we'll pray right now, and and then we'll go from there. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.